Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. You can have a seat. So great to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Great if you're joining us on in person or in online. Can we just begin by just take a second and just do a good, a good yawn? You want to do that just to start? I never thought I would feel this way. I thought daylight savings would be easier as I got older, but apparently it gets harder and harder. But you just get one yawn, and then we're going we're gonna to do this together, okay? But we're really excited to just learn and uh, open the scriptures together. We've been continuing, or we're continuing a series we've been going through on the topic of, of suffering. And one of the things that we've talked about, or that Pastor Dom talked about last week, is how often in our world or our culture, it gives us these phrases or these ideas to help us almost to deal with suffering that aren't always helpful or aren't even true. Phrases that we talked about like, time heals all wounds, or what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And when I think of those phrases for myself, I think of a season in my life where I learned how unhelpful these can be. I will never forget a Christmas when I was younger when I left my home and I left my family. I was around 18, a young adult, teenager, still kind of figuring things out, and I had a big kind of falling out with my parents uh, about a month or two before Christmas, and I actually chose to leave the home. And I remember over that Christmas it being the most painful and the most difficult Christmas or season of my life. And, you know, eventually, I even remember something that I didn't expect was that not only was that kind of had an effect on my relationship with my parents, but because I was gone, it, it affected even my sisters or my family or my extended family over that season. And uh, just so you know, we worked it out. I had a great relationship uh, with my dad before he passed away, amazing relationship with my mother. But I think of, when I look back at that time, how unhelpful it would have been to hear those phrases. That if someone had said to me, time heals all wounds, I would have known that, no, it's going to take learning to forgive one another and, and working things out and having difficult conversations to, to kind of be restored again or for this relationship to be healed. Or if somebody said to me, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I knew in that moment that I felt weak and lost and confused and bitter and angry. And so over these past few weeks as we've been thinking about this, as we're in this season of Lent, we've been wrestling with this issue of suffering, and we've been exploring not only just some of the challenges and the complexities of suffering, but we've been exploring as well how some of these phrases or ideas or even tools that our culture gives us that are supposed to kind of help us process suffering and be helpful can actually really be the opposite often, can be really unhelpful or even harmful, and they keep us sometimes from even processing suffering in a healthy and biblical way. And so our prayer, just as we head towards Easter and as we're in this season together, is that God would use this season to correct, 
some of our assumptions and to help us grow and to be shaped by the deeper wisdom of the Bible and what it teaches us about suffering and what it means to kind of uh, be restored or to be healed. And as we looked at this theme of suffering, one of the things we've done is we've been going through a book in the Bible called the book of Isaiah. Maybe uh, you've been tracking with us and you've tried to read it so far. If that's you, uh, good luck. We pray for you. It's a very difficult book uh, to read, but we hope that it's just helped to, be, to kind of enter in that book together. And as we've been looking at it, it's a book where the prophet Isaiah is writing to God's people at a time when they're experiencing real suffering. And in the first week or the past couple of weeks, we talked about how some of their suffering was actually connected to their own disobedience. And if you were here last week, Pastor Dom talked about a moment where Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry, and he does this to point to God's healing, but the people he's speaking to are more interested in getting revenge than in God's redemption. More interested in revenge even than how he wanted to restore and heal. And if you're in a home group, I know uh, from talking to some of you, talking to the leaders, and just from being in one myself, that we've had some just really good conversations and good discussions as we've tried to work some of this stuff out what it looks like even to, to see how that plays out in our own lives as we seek to grow deeper together. And so now this week, we're going to kind of look at another moment in Jesus' ministry where he's again going to quote words from the prophet Isaiah, uh, and, and we're going to look at a particular section in the book of Isaiah. And this time, when he quotes from the book of Isaiah, he does this as a sort of rebuke or challenge to the leaders of his day. Jesus is going to quote from the book of Isaiah to challenge these leaders because of something that they're doing that's causing other people to suffer or that it's ignoring the suffering of others. And one of the reasons why Jesus is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah is because Isaiah at the time also has a special criticism that he reserves for the leaders of his days of how they're causing their own people to suffer. One theme that kind of runs that you'll pick up throughout the book is that the prophet Isaiah has a special criticism and a special judgment uh, from God for the kings and the rulers of his time because of how they failed time and time again to live up to their special role as, God's, as leaders of God's people. As Israel's leaders, they had a special and unique sort of responsibility to not only care for their people, but to lead those people into worship, to, to learn to worship well and to recognize God's goodness and to remind them of his, his love for him. But instead of fulfilling this responsibility, these leaders had let their hearts drift away from God's ways and from God's goodness. And this led to a kind of disobedience in them that was causing their own people to suffer. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says about these leaders right near the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Here's what it says. It says, Your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them love bribes, and demand payoffs, but they refuse to defend the cause of orphans or fight for the rights of widows. Wow. This is such an important connection for us to make as we think about this, to understand about the kind of suffering that comes from disobedience. That it's not just in this moment that God allows these leaders to suffer because of their own disobedience, but also that their disobedience is actually causing the suffering of their own people. This is a really important connection to make and to understand. That because their own hearts have been so shaped by other things, by pride or selfishness or greed or anger, they're no longer reflecting or pointing people to God's goodness or to God's own heart for His people. And so instead of leading their people in worship and experiencing more of His, his goodness, 
Instead, they're ignoring the needs and suffering of their people. And so Isaiah takes this time to call them out. And he tells them that God is now going to need to give some correction as they experience the consequences of these actions. Well, I think, I think for us, it's easy for uh, maybe to recognize this connection between disobedience and the suffering of, of others, specifically when we look at these leaders, or when we think of even leaders in our world today, because we understand this unique maybe responsibility that they have to care for other people. But I think it's harder than for us to recognize how this can happen in our own lives as well. These leaders are symbolic of how even our own hearts can be shaped in ways that are counter to God's goodness and that lead us to ignore or even to cause the suffering of those around us. We often don't see or even think about obedience, disobedience this way. It's easy maybe to think of just disobedience as this idea of just breaking a rule or getting a slap on the wrist from the government or from a police officer or whatever it is. But disobedience actually goes much, much deeper than that. And the wisdom of the Bible and the words of Isaiah help us to see how there's a kind of disobedience that begins to take root when we don't surrender our hearts to God. It can take root in a way that even if we aren't actively or intentionally trying to cause harm or seeking revenge on other people, we can actually begin to ignore the suffering of those around us or ignore how our own anger or bitterness is actually even hurting or affecting the people that we didn't mean to hurt. Likely, these leaders that Isaiah is dressing aren't actively trying to cause the suffering of the widows and the orphans in this situation. But because their hearts have drifted away from God's ways and God's goodness, they're ignoring that suffering and they're actually making things worse. And in our world today, I think our culture can actually fuel even this kind of ignorance to how our disobedience can lead to the suffering of others. One way this happens is just by using the phrase, it's none of your business. Anybody like that phrase? Anybody use that? It's a good one. One of the hallmarks, really, of our culture, right? And there are times uh, that it's appropriate to say this or to use this, especially when there's an invasion of our privacy or someone's being really nosy or controlling. But it can also be used as an excuse to ignore maybe the collateral damage that our actions can have on other people. It's easy to say, it's none of your business, what I do, while ignoring how my behavior is quickly becoming everybody else's business. It's easy to say, it's none of your business, while ignoring how my own selfishness is leading leading me to ignore responsibilities to care for someone I'm supposed to care about. Or to say, it's none of your business, and ignore how my attitude or my resentment towards a co-worker is making the whole office feel miserable. Or to say, as a parent, it's none of your business, while my own anger or bitterness towards someone is having a profound effect on my own spouse or kids. One of the hardest things about suffering as well that Pastor Dom touched on last week is the truth that hurt people hurt people. That principle, I think, when we think about that, seems so unfair. Maybe that our own hurt can lead to others' suffering as well. But it means, and what it's saying, is that when we ignore the pain or the hurt that we've experienced from someone else, If we leave that unattended, we can pass that pain and suffering directly or indirectly onto our own kids or onto other people in ways that make it harder for them to experience God's goodness. And this kind of disobedience isn't always obvious or always clear, or as clear as even breaking a particular rule. But if we're not careful and we let our hearts drift further and further away from God, not only will we experience a certain kind of suffering, but we can allow others to experience suffering a certain kind of suffering that we never intended to hurt. As you just think about this idea of the connection between disobedience and suffering, 
Where in your own life, maybe, has your own heart begun to drift away from God? Where do you need me to just pay attention to how you might be ignoring or even causing pain to those around you? Lent is a, is a tough season. It's a really important season for us to pay special attention to the ways that we've allowed our hearts to drift away from God and to recognize that like the leaders of Israel, we can also make it harder for those around us to experience God's goodness. And so now as we look at this moment where Jesus is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah, just as Jesus calls out the kings and the rulers, or sorry, as Isaiah calls out the kings and the rulers of his day, now, and how their wandering hearts are causing other people to suffer, Jesus is now going to quote Isaiah to address how the leaders of his day are doing the same thing. But it's no longer the kings and the rulers who need to be confronted. In Jesus' day, it's the religious leaders and the experts of the law. But now, these religious leaders are causing their people to suffer in a way that's very, very subtle. And in this moment that we're going to look at in Mark's gospel, so far, Jesus has been going around healing the sick and those who are suffering, and he's been teaching them about God's goodness and God's ways. And in this moment, while he's with the disciples and he's he's with a crowd of people, a group of Pharisees and religious leaders come from Jerusalem to see him. And we're not told kind of why we're there, if they traveled out from Jerusalem to where he was just to see him, or if they just kind of ran into him while they were doing something else. But while they're with him and the disciples, they notice something very, very particular that catches their attention right away. They notice that the disciples of Jesus aren't washing their hands before eating their food. Now, you might hear that and you kind of think, what does that matter? Like, I don't wash my hands before I eat food. I don't even wash my hands before I go to the bathroom. That's you. Don't raise your hands, okay? Don't ever raise your hand, actually. Just keep them in your pockets. Uh, but, well, it's really hard for maybe for us in our culture to understand this or to understand what they're talking about. This is a really big deal to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' time because it's about more than just good hygiene. And we'll explore that a little bit more in a second. And so right away, they call out Jesus and ask him why he's allowing the disciples to do this. Here's what they say to him. It says, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And so just for a moment here, while we don't have the time or maybe even the brain power to kind of really explain what this means or the significance of this to the Jewish people at the time, this question the leaders ask Jesus has to do with certain customs or practices of the Jewish people that center around the issue of spiritual purity or cleanliness. Okay, they were these outward physical uh, practices or traditions that were meant to reflect or point to an inward spiritual cleanliness, or restoration. And we'll get back to this idea. But it's important to know that some of these practices, along with some of the other traditions uh, that, that touched on other aspects of worship, came directly from the commandments of the Torah, from the Old Testament. And some of them were added later as practices or customs of the Jewish people. But all of these practices and traditions were meant to help the Jewish people to worship God and to experience God's restoration and his goodness in their lives. Hey, everyone got that so far? Everyone's with me? So what happens, though, is that in his answer, Jesus says something very surprising. 
As these religious leaders are asking about this particular custom or tradition, he's going to give them a very surprising answer. And in his answer, he's going to take the opportunity to quote words from the prophet Isaiah as a way of critiquing how certain customs were being used or certain traditions were being used or embodied by God's people in ways that were disconnected from God's ways. Here's what he says. It says, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Ouch. What a response. Just to a simple question about washing hands. But to help us again to just really understand what Jesus is saying here, what's going on here, Jesus reacts this way in a way that we need to clarify something actually that can be very difficult for us to understand or can easily be misinterpreted here. What you need to understand, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, is that Jesus isn't saying that all traditions are bad. In fact, we know that Jesus on many occasions will follow different Jewish traditions like going regularly to the synagogue, which Pastor Don talked about last week. And he and his disciples will even pass on different practices and traditions, like the practice of taking communion. And so the issue that's, that's happening here isn't that these religious leaders have certain traditions that they follow or that Jesus is against all tradition. The issue is that they were creating or applying certain practices or traditions or commands in ways that were counter to God's goodness and to God's ways and ways that even contradicted directly God's commands. And so because of this, some of these practices that they were doing, instead of leading God's people to worship and helping them know and experience God's goodness, they had actually become a barrier to God's goodness. Okay, and just to go a little bit deeper to help us understand this, one example of this kind of practice that Jesus is now going to highlight in the next couple verses is a practice called Corbin. Okay, if you don't know that word, if you don't remember it, don't worry. The word Corbin just meant to offer or devote something to God. But Jesus uses this opportunity to point out that the way this practice of Corbin is being embodied or applied by the religious leaders and shared with the people is that it's not only contradicting God's ways, but it's actually causing suffering to God's people. And he explains how this is happening. So just to sum up this practice quickly for us, it was a way for someone at the time to dedicate their property to God or to the temple almost as like a deferred offering or uh, or vow. In a sense, they were promising to give their their property to the temple after they died, which is a beautiful idea. It's almost an an act of worship to say, God can have all of my resources uh, in this way. But in reality, what was actually happening and the way that it was being applied was actually a sneaky way for sons to keep their parents from benefiting from using their property or from using any of their belongings. Because how this property was being applied or this practice was being applied was that after the property was dedicated to God, if anyone else in the meantime used it besides the son, they would be considered to be trespassing on God's property. Isn't that crazy? Everyone got that? Once this was done, even, this was so bad that there was no way, even if the the son changed their mind, they wouldn't be allowed to change their mind because the religious leaders said, once you devoted this, you can't go back. Imagine using this just as a trump card for your own parents or for your own in-laws. You can't come to our house. You can't use our things because of this. Not that anyone would do that. We love our in-laws. 
Uh, so what was happening, again, was that practically it actually meant that any parents who needed help from their sons were instead being turned away if their sons did this. That their sons were using it as an excuse to not help their parents who were in need. And it was going directly against God's command to honor your father and your mother. Isn't that wild? That this tradition or this practice that was meant to be an act of worship and to point people to God's goodness had instead become a barrier to God's goodness and was actually causing God's people to suffer. Jesus calls out these religious leaders by quoting these harsh words from the prophet Isaiah because they're symbolic, again, of someone whose heart is far from God. That even something that's meant to be an act of worship can be so disconnected and so twisted that it becomes counter to God's ways. That it can even become a barrier for others to experience God's goodness. This happens, I think, all the time in our world today. That when our hearts are far from God, even our worship or how we lead others to worship can become a barrier to God's goodness. One of the ways that this happens today is through something just called legalism. Legalism is something that's easily disguised as worship or an obedience to God, but it twists a principle or a practice or a commandment in a way that it forces it, enforces it in a way that it becomes absent of God's heart or God's goodness or God's grace. It's a way of applying a practice or a command in a way that instead of leading people to worship or to a deeper relationship with God, it becomes a barrier. And the tricky thing about legalism, it can be so subtle, but at the same time so destructive. And many people, maybe even you, have been hurt or misled by the dangers of legalism. Whether it's enforcing one Bible translation over all others, or telling people they can only wear certain clothes to come to church, or that they have to speak a certain way, or telling someone they only really worshiping God with your resources if you tithe this exact percentage of your income and no less, or if you pray or you read the Bible a certain number of times per week. And while some of this, I think, can sound harmless to us, maybe even a bit silly, it's not harmless to a family who's in debt, who can't afford maybe a certain, uh, to give a certain amount or even to give at all in a certain season, to be told to give a certain amount. Or a person who's too poor, poor to afford certain kinds of clothes in order to go to church. And one of the hardest or sneakiest things I think about legalism is that it often sounds right. It often sounds like someone who's talking this way, they're being more zealous or they're being more passionate or more serious or even more spiritual. And it's hard for us to argue with someone who's accusing you to worship in a way that's more serious. Not only that, but I think it can even be a tempting way to live because it makes things sound so simple or so black and white. That if I just follow these steps or do these particular things, that's how I can be a good Christian. But another thing I think that's even more subtle that can happen when someone maybe has been hurt by this kind or this one kind of legalism is that we can swing even to the other extreme when we think about worship. We can believe that worship then is all about feelings with no rules or guidelines or principles at all. This is so common in our culture to say that true or authentic worship or spirituality is all about our feelings. And anything else that even hints or smells of any kind of tradition must be wrong or oppressive in some way, and so we automatically have to reject it. But the irony of this belief is that it becomes its own kind of legalism. 
Because it can keep you and others from experiencing the good kinds of traditions and practices that actually point to God's goodness and help people, help lead us in worship. Not only that, but this plays into the lie in our culture that you can always trust your feelings. That being in touch with your feelings, though, still won't help you if all they reveal is that your heart is still far from God. At its core, legalism is a way of worshiping God on our terms without growing in deeper relationship with Him. And ultimately what happens is it becomes a barrier to God's goodness because it's absent of God's heart. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah as a warning, not only to the religious leaders, but as a warning to us that we don't, when we don't surrender our hearts to God, even our worship can become disconnected from what it means to glow, grow closer to Him. And the way we worship can even become a barrier to other people. And he says that this results then not only in a kind of religious legalism, but also a kind of his spiritual hypocrisy. We can become hypocrites. That you can honor God with your lips, as he says, but your heart is still far from Him. It's a warning for us of how easy it is to look spiritual on the outside while ignoring the spiritual transformation God wants to do on the inside. That it's possible for us to read our Bibles regularly or pray or give generously or go to church or sing songs without ever growing closer to God. And even our own hypocrisy can become then a barrier to others experiencing God's love. When our kids or our neighbors can see that what we say we believe about God and the ways that we worship are disconnected from actually becoming more like Jesus, that can become a barrier for them to say, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. Jesus warns us that if we don't learn to surrender our hearts to God, none of our worship will matter because all the practices that are meant to point us to God's goodness will instead become disconnected from God's heart. When my uh, family and I, I grew up here but moved to Ontario, and when my family and I were still living in Ontario, uh, we had a house in this little town called Coburg. And one of the things that I didn't like about it is that it didn't pick up the garbage very often. And so uh, the, our garbage would kind of sit in the garage. And I remember a particularly hot summer where our garbage was sitting in the garage. And maybe you've had experience, this experience. Uh, if you kind of ate something this morning, brace yourselves. But... Uh, because the garbage had sit so long, when I, when I went to kind of open the, the, garage can one, the garbage can one day, maggots were coming out of the bag. And so I did everything I could to stop this from happening. Okay? I went out, I kept making sure the garage door was closed so that there was no sun going on the bag. I double bagged the bags, and then I triple bagged the bags. And when that didn't work, I sprayed it with like bleach on the bag and around the bag. And uh, ultimately what happened in the end was this really hot summer, I went to open my garage door and as I was opening it, maggots were coming down from the garage door. They had spread so far. It was disgusting. And I knew and I thought it was just a great reminder that I was trying to do so much to kind of remedy the symptoms of these maggots in the garbage bag, but ultimately I knew the only thing that would fix it is if the garbage person came and took the garbage away. That was it. And I think it's really something that's so easy for us, or we do something similar, in, or we can do something similar in our worship to God. We can focus on symptoms on the outside without ever letting God heal and restore our hearts. To think that focusing on symptoms or practices will fix things without surrendering our hearts and letting God clean out the garbage. 
We're going to wrap up uh, in a moment, and I'll invite the team to come up to make their way up. But I want to look, just as we wrap up, at what Jesus says next of what it means to focus just on the, the symptoms of our spiritual life instead of what's really at the root. After his rebuke to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders, he turns to the crowd to explain to them when these, religious, when these religious leaders are missing out on what it means to worship, he turns to the crowd to say something important. And here's what he says. He says, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And so just to bring it back, Jesus is wrapping up this conversation that he started with these leaders originally asking this question about cleanliness to say that it won't matter the changes you make to the exterior parts of your life if you don't let God change you from the inside out. That the practices of outward or physical cleanliness won't matter if they become disconnected from a deeper spiritual cleansiness that can only take root in our hearts. Because it's too easy for us to focus on looking healed or restored on the outside while at the same time ignoring what's happening in our hearts. While ignoring even how our lack of spiritual healing is affecting those around us. That it's easy maybe even to fix problems in our marriages or in other difficult relationships in a way that just focuses on the symptoms. To communicate better or to compromise just enough to get along or to look okay on the surface instead of letting God heal and restore our hearts. And again, this is really important. Jesus isn't saying that external things don't matter, that those external practices don't matter. Jesus knows that we actually need practices and traditions and physical things that are meant to help us draw near to God in our worship and to experience God's goodness. But he's saying that these things ultimately won't matter and will become disconnected if we refuse to let them have our hearts. That it won't be enough to just be in touch with our feelings if they just reflect a heart that's not surrendered to God's love. And Jesus says these last words as a way of teaching people that not, only he has the power to heal and to transform and to break even the cycle of suffering and destruction that can flow from within. But as, the, as we wrap up, as the, as the Pharisees and religious leaders hear this, not only will they miss entirely what he's saying, but they will actually become the group that because their hearts remain far from God, not only will they continue to cause harm to others, but they'll be the ones to actually cause Jesus the most suffering in the, in, in the end, instead of seeing him as the one that they're meant to worship and to surrender to. As we begin to close, as you think about your own life, Where have you maybe been focused on outward symptoms instead of surrendering your heart to God? How have you been content maybe to worship God in ways that are actually ignoring your heart and the things that he wants to do? When in your life has suffering or deep hurt maybe caused you even to harden your heart towards God or towards other people, to stop trusting that he wants to heal and restore something in you and to point you back to who he is and to his goodness, and to his ways. So as we begin to close, um, I'm going to just invite the band to sing the, the last song that they sung again. And uh, just as you, you sing this, would you just think about what it means, or just pay attention maybe to what God is bringing to the surface, to the things maybe in your heart that you're keeping from him, and, to, and what it means to just trust, again, that Jesus has the kind of power 
to set us free that nothing else has. So, and then I'll, I will just sing this and I'll come up and close, but I just invite you to stand as we sing this together. God is strong in battle Our God can never fail Through Him all chains are broken In Him the sick are healed In the name of Jesus Giants are defeated Every single mountain has to move. You're faithful to your promise. Finish what you started. There is none as powerful as you. Jesus, out of his love for us, wants us to just pay attention to areas where our hearts have drifted because he knows or he wants to, he wants to have all of us in our worship to turn to him because he knows that when our hearts drift, we can get a distorted view of who God is and we forget about his goodness in our own lives. We can forget that he's the God who, want, who always meets us where we're at. We can forget that he's the God who always forgives us, even when we're guilty of these things of creating barriers for other people. He wants to remind us of his forgiveness. Let's pray.
Jesus, you alone have the power to heal and restore the things in us that have drifted away from you and the things that have even caused us to ignore people around us or to hurt those around us. So we just ask you that you would restore and forgive us. Thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you don't keep us there. That the reason why you touch these things and want us to pay attention and to surrender our hearts to you is that you, you can remind us and help us to experience more of the fullness of your goodness and your love and your joy and your peace and your grace. Help us for those maybe who there's areas of our hearts that have hardened towards you that maybe you're letting them know that this is the time now whereas they learn just to soften those hearts that you have a kind of healing and restoring that they didn't believe that you could do. Help us for those who thought that worshiping you was all about these exterior things. To know that you actually long for a deep relationship with each of us. That you care that much about us. And so help us just as we go from here, as we learn to just continue in this season of Lent and to walk with you. To just pay attention to the things that you want to do in our hearts. To have the courage even to surrender those things to you. That you would just do a new work in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next week.